You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Vice President and Director of Athletics for Butler University, Barry Collier. Coach, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Robert. Thanks for having me. Is coach still the preferred salutation? Is once a coach, always a coach? I've been called much worse. Um, <laughs> and yes, I... I uh, I appreciate the uh, the association with coaching. I I'm uh, here a number of I'm called a number of things, but um, coach is one of the nicer ones. Is that something we'll get into your background quite a bit and talk about growing up and how you fell in love in basketball? But is coaching was coaching something you've always wanted to do? Um. Well, ever since I got uh, so deep into sports as a young, a young boy, uh, and especially in in high school, that's probably where I found a, a, a strong interest and uh, admiration for coaches that I had been under in high school, and that continued through college uh, and, and and led me into the field. Um, but I originally wanted to be an uh, a fighter pilot in the Air Force, um, but at six foot seven, that's not really the makeup for uh, at that time, anyway. So I, unlike my three brothers, um, I wasn't able to do that. So your three brothers do what? Uh, be airline Air Force pilots, in uh, two older, one younger. A couple of them went to um, the Air Force Academy, and my dad was in the Air Force for a long time. So anyway, that was that was kind of a natural family, you know, uh, motivation to do that, uh, or examples of do, people doing that. And uh, I was actually in ROTC as a as a freshman in college, but um, I sat for the physical and was my legs stuck out too far. That's kind of what you lose <laughs> if, if you're in a cockpit and you eject. You don't want to leave your knees behind. That would be that would be a problem. And where did you grow up? Uh, well, I, as I mentioned, my dad was in the Air Force. I was born in England when they were stationed there in, in the, at an RAF base in the 50s. And then we moved around a lot. Uh, mostly grew up in the southeast in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Birmingham, Alabama, and Miami, Florida. And um, uh, had uh, uh, a great experience of meeting new people on a regular basis when you move around as a kid growing up. I'm, I have been a fan of the Miami dolphins since super bowl six. Uh, you graduated from high school. I'm guessing right around 1972, 73, 71, 72. You were right on it. I went to, uh, uh, dolphin games at the orange bowl, sat in the end zone. And uh, when you go to Dolphin Games in Miami, Florida in late August, it can be, be warm. Um, but those were great teams, as you, as you well know. 
Great team. Did you did you grow up a Dolphins fan? Did you stay a Dolphins fan until you became a permanent Colts fan? I'm gonna guess. Yes, I, I did, and I uh, have to admit now I follow a lot of teams, um, especially and in including the Colts. Uh, but I'm still a Dolphins fan because of uh, memories. And so you remember the undefeated season in 1972 very very well. Absolutely, I was there a couple games. My dad had season tickets. I got to go every once in a while. Um, and uh, we had, you know, at that time, the Dolphins, it was fantastic. Um, but we had a number of Dolphin uh, players that would come and speak to our uh, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes group at my high school and other Fellowship of Christian Athletes events. I remember having interactions with the Killer Bees and uh, of the defensive oh in the early 80s no that was in the was the no-name the no-name defense in the early 70s with uh Bonacani and jake yeah, scott blackwell and yep exactly did basketball playing sports come natural to you or was it something that you grew into for lack of a better term you know i was in youth sports um some but mostly uh, piddled around in it uh, for a long time. And then uh, as, as I got into high school um, or junior high, actually ninth grade in Miami, Florida, I tried out for the basketball team and got cut. And uh, I ended up on that year on a, a rec league team, uh, Optimus League with dad's coaching. Um, but I got the bug and uh, played every day and, you know, dribbled through the park and dribbled home in the dark and all that stuff. And then it, and then it became uh, a real obsession to make the team as a sophomore at the high school now on the JV team. And I remember being pretty much distraught uh, on the night that the cuts were going to come out the next day. And, but I made it. And, um, I was never a, a real good player, but good enough to be on a team and play two years in junior college and get recruited to Butler. So really fortunate that way. Um, and I, you know, basketball is a game you can, you can get a lot better at it by yourself with a ball and a hoop. Uh, right. if, you, if you put in the time. My father was in the Marine Corps and my mother was in the Marine Corps. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a delight. Uh, but in so many ways, having that bit of my background growing up, you know, I was in the army for three years. My brother was in the air national guard for 10. My other brother was in the army for three. And then my son uh, actually did two tours in Afghanistan. So listen to you talk about the military uh, string in your family, the tradition, how much has that influenced you and tell the leaders and legends audience what it's like to grow up in a military household. Well, um, I suppose each household is, is somewhat different, but I was one of four brothers in a, and no sisters in a, um, in a family that my dad joined uh, the military uh, right as the, as world war II was ending and served in, during Korea and, and actually was in Vietnam. Uh, he was a, a navigator bombardier. And um, then my oldest brother, uh, who's seven years older, which is quite a bit. And I have a bro another a second brother, uh, older brother, who's just a year older. So he and I were pretty close mm -hmm. still. Um, but my oldest brother went to, through ROTC and uh, flew in Vietnam. Um, and then the next brother went to the Air Force Academy and, uh, he would tell you he missed the show because he, um, was basically in between conflicts and never served during a wartime. And my youngest brother, like your son, sounds like, uh, did nine different tours to Iraq and Afghanistan wow. in a F, F uh, 16. Um, so, you know, I've lived uh, in, through them, uh, and, and of course realize their sacrifice and every, 
veterans and, and active duty members uh, sacrifice. So I, I have tremendous respect for them. And, um, and, and in our family, we moved around a lot. And as I said, it was one of four brothers. And so when we would move, we would say that, uh, well, we'll fight with each other until we make friends to fight with. And um, <laughs> that was our way of, of adapting because we had each other to lean on. Uh, my mom a, was a strong woman and, and my dad had gone a lot, like lots of uh, fathers during that time with, especially, you know, being uh, deployed and so forth. Um, but, you know, we, um, uh, my dad was a first generation uh, college student, put himself through after uh, World War II. And, um, and we all, you know, there, there were some real good lessons there taught by parents uh, that uh, we were real fortunate to have. So I, um, you know, every chance I get, I, I think we all should thank veterans, you and others who, who have served uh, in our, our country and given us all the uh, opportunities that we have protected us along the way. So thank, thank you for you. saying that. Thank you. You, you mentioned going to junior college. Mm -hmm. Why was that your first stop? And then how did Butler get on your radar and how did you get on its radar? Well, I was uh, out of high school. I was a strapping six foot four and a half and a buck 85, which if you do the math is pretty darn skinny and not very athletic and all that kind of stuff. And at the last minute, I decided to try to play college basketball. Uh, you know, I was a 10 point a game, 10 point, 10 rebound a game, high schooler. So nothing, you know, not recruited, uh, a few letters, but not recruited. Uh, and I went to junior college. When I came out of junior college, I was six seven and two oh five, and and actually um, could play a little bit, and at least enough to fool the coach at Butler to recruit me. And uh, and I, at that time, I had I had some choices, and I came to Indiana uh, on the recommendation to but, to visit Butler on my, uh, my my junior college coach who was from Cincinnati, and um, knew about Butler and his reputation and. Hinkle Fieldhouse and, and Tony Hinkle and all that was, you know, here. I didn't know those things, but he did. I came up to visit and I knew Butler was a good school. I'd done my homework there. Uh, but I walked in the Fieldhouse and I like to say my jaw dropped like an egg from a tall chicken. It was my Hoosiers moment where you, you know, you're yelling hickory. I didn't yell hickory at the time because the movie wasn't out yet, but um, it was. Have you ever, have you ever yelled hickory? Uh, a, a lot. Uh, still do at the field house. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it, I think everybody should, but, um, yeah, that's how I ended up there. So I was, I was fortunate to, to be under some good coaches and some, some good training. And, you know, frankly, weightlifting was kind of a new thing for sports athletes and in, at least in our area in the seventies. And, but I benefited from that the two years I was out and I was a 17 year old high school grad. So um, I, I still had some growing to do once I got to college. You came up to Indiana uh, right about the time that a school about 50 or 60 miles south of Butler was making its mark, adding to its history. Do you remember those Bob Knight 1975-1976 IU teams? I do. We did not play them when I was here at Butler during the, the, that time. But I distinctly remember watching uh, on Channel 4, both Purdue and IU games on television during that time. And uh, in black and white, largely was the TV that we had at the fraternity house. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, there were, you know, and We'd watch the Sunday coaches show, I think it was. It, right. was. it was really interesting, and they got going pretty, pretty much right away. And of course, the, they were national champions in in '76. Uh, uh, and I did get to play against the the seniors on my class. Those seniors in an All Star, a uh, couple of All Star games, or with them, I should say. Um, when we played against an Ohio all-star team back in the day. So that was about the extent of it during that time.
I guess it's it's fair to and and tell me if I'm if I'm not correct, but it's fair to say Florida is a football state. And yes, now you, definitely fair. And now you're in Indiana, which, you know, aside from a school up in South Bend, has a has a mixed uh, football legacy at the collegiate level. But at the uh, on the hardwood, that was a completely different story. What was it like to to walk into a state or a school where basketball was on everyone's mind seemingly all the time? Well, it was a it was a significant change um, from from Florida, as you point out, and uh, and I, I ate it up, of course, because I played basketball, so I I um, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, and then even later on, when I was when I was coaching at Butler, um, and and remember now, and later in the seventies, in the late seventies, ESPN came on, and now you've got football, but also basketball during the winter seasons uh, on all the time. So, um, you know, basketball is different here in Indiana. I mean, we do take it, and I'm not saying it's the only place. Uh, it's just the best place. I'll say that. Um, and I, I think it, um, you know, it's, there's some, there's a lot of good sports, by the way. Um, but Indiana has, has long had a passion for basketball um, that, that I, it was easy for me to just get swept up in that. The Butler you came to in the mid seventies and the Butler that you work at now as director of athletics and vice president seemingly has changed a little bit. What do you think when you walk on campus these days and, and see some of the places that you first saw when Gerald Ford was president and what you see now? Uh, well, you can imagine there's, there's a lot of change in that span of time from 1973 was when I first came to visit the campus in this in the uh, fall of I mean the spring of I'm oh, sorry 74 spring of 74 um, and uh, Butler has uh, has has um, grown and changed um, pretty significantly it was like I said I think I've, I've already said it was a good school all along um, wasn't as well known. Uh, and even when I coached here, Robert, in the, uh, starting in 89, uh, we'd go out recruiting in the summer and I made sure that, you know, uh, we had great big letters on the front of our t-shirts saying Butler, but I also made sure we had great big letters saying Indianapolis underneath it because there wasn't, uh, as many people, there weren't as many people that knew that where Butler was what it was for that. Right. And that's changed some, uh, relatively significantly. Some of that's gone come with the, you know, the successes of the basketball programs in particular, the 2010 and 2011 seasons where the team got all the way to the final game with Brad Stevens coaching and, and those really good teams. So, um, and since then actually it's grown more because of being able to join the Atlantic 10 and then the big East and then the television that comes with all of that. Um, it's a real plus for Butler, uh, and, and has helped in its growth. Uh, so it's been, uh, rewarding to see all of that happen. After you graduated from Butler, what was your plan and what led you back to your alma mater? Well, I, I did, uh, I did want to coach when I came to Butler. I, you know, was working to coach. Now I, I thought I might just just as easily be a high school coach or another level coach, junior high, a junior high coach for that matter. Coach the game of basketball. That's what I was hoping to do. And so you graduate from from college and you're just ready to take on the world and be the next John Wooden, and nobody cares. So. <laughs> you find a way. And, and my, during the time I was at Butler, my junior college coach, Stan Evans went to Indiana state as an assistant coach. So, uh, 
he suggested that I, uh, if I was interested to come to Indiana State for graduate school that next year and be a graduate assistant in the basketball program. And I, and I, I ended up doing that. I was also married, uh, still am married, uh, to uh, my sweetheart um, after my junior year at, at Butler. So we went to Terre Haute and uh, I was in grad school and I was going to be an assistant coach on the, I mean, a graduate assistant on the Indiana State team. But right before this practice began, Rose Holman uh, had a, a volunteer opening. That sounds rather strange, doesn't it? But, and underpaid uh, and, uh, or unpaid. Uh, <laughs> properly paid, right? Um, and so I took that opportunity and worked with John Muchner, who was a really good coach at, at, uh, at Rose Holman. And went to school and taught classes at Indiana State as a graduate assistant. Uh, got a master's degree, and then it was all it was you know Groundhog Day again. Here I am, ready to be the next John Wooden. Nobody cares. What are you going to do? And so that's that, that next year I landed uh, a job, and as I describe it as one of the great uh, witness protection programs in America. And that is to be an assistant coach at a junior college because nobody knows who you are. And uh, so that fit right in with uh, this, you know, initial opportunity to go uh, into coaching. Um, but I, you know, and I, so that second year, I worked for a whopping $700 as a stipend for the year to coach. So obviously I had to have other part-time jobs. And then my third year, I landed at the University of Idaho again in a part-time job, uh, but finally got my nose in the door there and was able to stick uh, in the business for coaching for uh, 30 years. How long were you at Indiana State? Uh, a little over a year. So I started, took two summers plus the school year uh, to finish the master's degree. Did you? Well, one, one season. Did you ever see a tall blonde haired kid walking across campus and not realize he was going to be one of the greatest players in the history of the game? Well, actually, um, when the season began, the basketball seasons that year began, I was over at Rose Holman coaching in the afternoons and Indiana state was practicing. And as I said, my junior college coach was an assistant coach at Indiana state. So I would teach in the morning and go to class in the morning at Indiana State, and then I'd go over to Rose in the afternoon. And the season began, and this kid from Indiana State is scoring 30 points and averaging 10 rebounds. And I'm like, who does that? No, I can't <laughs> believe that. So I asked my coach, and he said, well, you'll have to come see him play. And I said, well, yeah, of course. And I said, does he jump real high? And he said, no. Does he run real fast? No. Is he, is he like a muscle man or something? No, you'll have to come see him play. And so then I did and it looked like, whoa. And then during the winter break, when Rose Holman was gone for three weeks of break, um, the Indiana State team was practicing that whole time and I became a practice player. So Larry made me look silly, like he made so many others look silly in it. But at least it was in a practice setting. There wasn't a lot of witnesses. And, and were you able to reconnect with him a little bit 30 years later when he's coaching and, and uh, the president of the, of the Pacers or running the Pacers on the, on the basketball side and you're here in Indianapolis at Butler? Did you tell him, like, you remember that one time I, I shot, I rained that jumper on you? Uh, no. Well, no, we didn't. We really haven't uh, uh, connect, reconnected. We not, not that we were all that connected back then. Anyway, I don't want to overspeak that. We played on the same softball team for, you know, during the summer and then Terre Haute and, and all that. But um, I did have a teammate that the next year, uh, Bird's junior year, I think, or no, maybe it was his sophomore year. Anyway, he was, my, my former teammate popped off and said he was going to really shut him down and he went for 44 on him. <laughs> so if, if you're a fan of, if you're a fan of YouTube, you should uh, look up Nolan Richardson, the former coach of Arkansas, Nolan Richardson's hall of fame induction speech. 
if you've never seen it. If you have, then you'll know what I'm talking about, where Nolan Richardson talks about uh, listening to an Indiana State game on the radio and not knowing who this Larry Bird guy is who is dominating the game. And I'll just leave it at that. So yeah, anyone listening to the podcast, just look up Nolan Richardson's uh, Basketball Hall of Fame speech and uh, listen, to, listen to his his thoughts on Larry Bird. It's, it's really funny, actually. It is. It must, have you seen it? Yes. Uh, really good. It takes a lot of dedication on the part of everyone, the person, uh, the family, the spouse, to embrace the coaching lifestyle, uh, which in its own way has a lot in common with the military lifestyle of moving from place to place to try to find uh, one place at what point did you decide this is all worth it and your family decided we're all we're in it with you Barry we want you to achieve your dream because there had to have been times I'm guessing where you were just like maybe I should just sell insurance or work at a bank yeah you know uh you, you nailed it there Robert I too I agree that that um there are some parallels between the, the the military life and the and the coaching life in that year there's change and and uh move moving i've lived in 17 different places in my life and i got a few years on me now so it, that doesn't sound as much as it used to because i've <laughs> uh, not moved as much uh later in life but um i think actually that's pretty good training for you know it's it's not a bad thing it's what you make of your circumstance and take advantage of your opportunities as opposed to, you know, I want to stay in one place all my life. And that's, that's fine too. If that's what it is the best thing for you, but it's, you need to, in that scenario, you need to make the most of your opportunities as well. So I think that, that there are some parallels there. And my, my journey in the support of my family was really critical. I almost got out of coaching a couple of times when it got really recruiting is very, very hard. Uh, and the nights away, there were some weeks when it was six and seven nights a week. Um, and that's really hard or being gone for weeks at a time during summer recruiting. And, uh, nowadays you don't, you're not gone as much. You're gone a lot. You could be gone a lot, but you're on that cell phone all the time now and talking and more so than it used to be because of the convenience of being able to you know, have a phone all the time or the inconvenience if you're on the receiving end of that, maybe. But um, yeah, so I think that the I, I could not have done uh, whatever I accomplished. I would not have done it without the support of my family. And my wife and I have three sons. Uh, they were all, they're all into it. They're big, huge Butler fans. One's a, a Butler grad. The other two are Nebraska grads where I was for a period of time. And and uh, so anyway, you know, there are some ways we're a sports family, I suppose, but basketball and Butler uh, are, are, are part of our family. And uh, we've benefited tremendously from that relationship. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Vice President and Director of Athletics for Butler University and a graduate of Butler, class of 76, Barry Collier. Barry, is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? Um, there, there actually are, are, are many, um, and what comes immediately to mind for me is, is, uh, a man that I got to know, uh, when he was serving all of us, uh, and got to know him over the years more so, uh, Richard Luger, Dick Luger. He actually came and spoke at a at a um, uh, 
an event that I was at in college uh, when he was the mayor. And then I visited him in, when I was coaching Butler. Of course, he was a senator. And uh, we did the, uh, I don't know if it's a Chevy Chase. We did the Chevy Chase version of the, the family trip to Washington, D.C. and to see all the monuments and the Smithsonian's. <laughs> and we went to see Senator Luger at his office. And he you know, took pictures and was very gracious. I had, when I invited him to a ball game over the you know number of games, and he came to one game, and I made him the honorary assistant coach and he 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 sat right next to me at the game on the bench and he told me later he said you know I stuck my head in the the timeout and and he got asked after by the media after the game what was it like to put your head in the timeout and listen and he said well the language is kind of colorful in there in the timeout and so he <laughs> but he was uh, very gracious and then if if you could uh, see my office here I have a uh, American flag hanging on the wall behind me that flew over the capital of the United States in 2010 as an honor uh, to um, for Butler being in the final four. He sent a flag to me and to Brad Stevens and to President Fong. And so I'm very proud of that uh, sitting behind me. And I think of him because um, you know, he's, he served for a long time, you know, politics being what they are. And I, you know, I tend to uh, agree on that side more so, I suppose. But nonetheless, um, he was a guy that, in my opinion, got a lot done and was, uh, you know, a role model in his, the way he presented himself and so forth. And so anyway, I would use him as an example. But I, you know, I thought Gene Cady and Bob Knight and Lou Holtz and um, Dave Jim Arlen, Mitchell. Dave Arlen, Dave Arlen. Yeah. Well, good friend, Dave Arlen. <laughs> Those, you know, there are so many people here are uh, Jeff Bannister, Bill Lynch, who's a real good, actually Bill Lynch was our, uh, my teammate here at Butler when I was in school. And of course went on to coach football, a number of Indiana schools and recently retired. Uh, great admiration for him. Bill Sylvester, who coached here and AD here at Butler. So many people I, you know, I've benefited from. I want to read this and then ask you to, to comment on it, please. The Butler way demands commitment, denies selfishness, accepts reality, yet seeks constant improvement while putting the team above self. Has the Butler way always been the Butler way? You've been associated with the school for nearly 50 years. Has it changed at all or is it just better known? Oh, I would say it's just better known. I, I think, uh, you know, as you, as you read that and think about it, it's really a, a, a way of doing something. It's, uh, you know, it's a path, as we would describe it, a path to success. And I would easily credit Tony Hinkle with, with uh, uh, coaching and leading the, with the Butler way for 50 years in his lifetime, that he's really the father of the Butler way. Now we didn't call it the Butler way back then. Um, it's a more you know recent term, but it, it, you know, it applies to anybody. It, you know, we happen to work at Butler and go to school here and so forth. But those things you think about them, they work in your family life, your faith, faith life, your, your work life, schools, whatever organization, if you can, um, you know, do your part and, and work to improve and, um, and put others, uh, and help others that, uh, that would be, those would be pretty good principles. Uh, they all happen to be biblical pr principles, but they've been used by man for thousands of years. And, um, and I'd also say, um, you know, for my growth as a coach, uh, Don Munson, Judd Heathcote, and Dick Bennett had a significant uh, influence on my coaching. And I'd say those principles um, align with those guys as well. So anyway, for the Butler way, um, 
I'd like to lift up Tony Hinkle every time we talk about that because he was a, uh, you know, a, a grinder and a, and a successful guy with limited resources um, that, you know, accomplished so much. In 1989, you became the head coach of Butler University. It had to have been a thrill to walk out into the, the field house as, as the head coach and not just a fan and not just a, a former player. Do you remember that moment in 1989 when you, the ball was tipped off for the first time with you as head coach? And what are some of your memories of coaching at, at Butler? And some of your, I, I know a few of your uh, probably more signature wins, but is there a game or two that stands out as well? Well, you know, the, the, to look back that far, it's been quite a while now, um, 30 plus years, but uh, lots of memories of that time. I was uh, an assistant coach for 13 years at at uh, five different schools before I, I uh uh, the, the the Butler job opened. Uh, Joe Sexton uh, left in '89, and uh, I was out in in California at Stanford University as an assistant coach. And w- one of my co-assistant uh, fellow assistant coaches out there called me in my room. I remember, I was in LA, and we were waiting to get go to our game for the Pac-10 basketball tournament. And he called and said, hey, I just saw on TV that the Butler job is open. And I really hadn't ever thought much about um, coming back to Butler because Butler didn't turn over its coaches very often. And as far as I knew, that wasn't going to be anything anytime soon. But I had been trying to, to land a head coaching job. And I was relatively young then, still 34 at the time. And um, anyway, so I, I tried to uh, get involved in the Butler job. Remember now we're 1989, the limited um, communication uh, forms at that time. So phone calling was the deal. And I called President Jeff Bannister, who I had learned was basically going to be doing the hiring of that job, not the athletic director. And I couldn't get through. And I'd call again, and I couldn't get through. And I'd wait a few days and call again, and couldn't get through. Time was going on, so I started calling every day. Couldn't get through. And one day I decided I'm gonna call today. I'm gonna get to hold of somebody today. And I would call every day, and and uh, up to that point, and every time that day, and speak to the secretary, who was as nice as could be, would take a note for me. So the sixth time that I called that day to leave the sixth message, she, I think I wore her down because she said just a minute. <laughs> And uh, apparently she went in the other room and said, hey, would you, I'm, I'm imagining this, but would you take this call so this guy would stop calling or something like that, right? And then on the phone, she came back on the phone and she said, Dr. Bannister, I'll talk to you now. And he came on the phone and he, and I was like, okay, here's my shot. I got to give the, you know, the nine minute talk in like 90 seconds here and I'll come up from air afterwards. And I started to uh, give my, my um, pitch. And he said, Barry, I just talked to Judd Heathcote. We're going to bring you in for an interview. We'll call you back. Click. So I, didn't, <laughs> I wasn't even able to, to do anything. But I came on the visit and, and interviewed and fooled them, and they hired me. And, uh, and I say fooled them because that's really a lot of that's true. My first year at Butler, you were asking about 89, 89-90. Thad Mata is on the team. Uh, we had um, uh, some really good kids on the team, good and I was not a good coach. And I would readily admit my first year at Butler, we won six games. And at that time you played 28. So if my math is correct, we lost 22 games. We were six and 22. I have one of the worst records in, in uh, the time at Butler. Um, anybody's coaching at Butler, but we immediately turned it around the next year and won 18, then 21, and then kind of kept going and moving it forward. Uh, we've had many good, better coaches than me uh, before and after me. Um, but I learned a lot during that time. 
and and you learn a lot from losing too. I mean, that's one of my things that I think is really important is to learn from negative circumstances in part so they don't happen again. But also it's just part of life. We're not going to be successful in every everything that we try. So, um, uh, but as, as time went on, we, we were able to have some success. We were playing Notre Dame every year, one, one game a year, home one year up in South Bend, the next, and we got to, a, we lost maybe like six years in a row. And finally we, we were able to win there and that was a big win. And, um, in fact, we might've, that was, in, that was my second year when we find when we did beat them, I believe that's right. And they said, is this, uh, and it was early in the season, maybe the third game of the season or early in the season anyway. And, and the, one of the media people asked me, is this one of your biggest wins? And I said, oh, are you counting all six last year plus the three this year? <laughs> I didn't have very many wins to compare it against, but nonetheless, that was a big thing. We, we later on, Coach Knight at, uh, at IU was willing to play us in Hinkle Fieldhouse as part of a series where we'd play it in Bloomington a couple times and they'd play here once. And we were able to win the, a game here where Travis Trice shot the lights out and Jermaine Geis scored 20 something. And it was a great day for Butler that day. There was a lot of red in the building that day because of I <laughs> um, and good for them too. But uh, I remember that, that when we, we played Purdue in the same similar scenario, we're not able to beat them, um, but just gradually, you know, getting better and recruiting and leaning on assistant coaches who made all the difference in the world for our teams. Uh, those are things I remember in those, those 11 years I was head coach here. You left Butler to become the head coach at Nebraska. So you go from a basketball state back to a football state. What was that like and what went into the decision to do something like that? Leave a school you love, your alma mater, a city obviously that you care deeply about. But Nebraska was, was it in the Big Ten by then? I don't think so. Was it? Big 12. Big 12. Okay. So it hadn't matriculated over to the Big Ten. Bigger stage, bigger school, all those things. Uh, But it had to be, I'm guessing, a very difficult decision for you. Yeah, it was. I would, I would say, um, you know, professional curiosity won the day uh, in that decision because, and this is not to speak uh, anything ill of of Nebraska, but but Butler was, you know, my home. But you're just you're curious professionally what it would be like to be at a place where you have. 33 people that work in the weight room at Nebraska. We didn't have 33 people in our department at Butler. And um, the resources that you have in those scenarios um, are, are very significant. And it's significant largely because of football success, right? Nebraska football's a juggernaut. And uh, for 19 or 2000, when I went there, um, they had had sellouts since 1965. Uh, they averaged nine wins for 40 years. It was unbelievable the success that they have they had there. And um, Tom Osborne was still on the campus at that time. He wasn't the coach at that time, but you know he's a icon in the sports world, college football world for sure. So anyway, um, it was very different and difficult um, personally or. Um, individually because of the, all the stuff that had, had happened here. Butler gave me a chance uh, in 1989 and 11 years later, it wasn't like um, I, you know, I tired of anything. I just was curious about what we could might, might be able to do because we weren't, we weren't averaging 4,000 people at our games back, even with the good teams that we had back when I was coaching. And um you know, there's great interest and in all of that goes with the the resources at a place like that. It's it's somewhat unimaginable um, when you do it so broadly like they they do in the Big 12 or the Big 10. Uh, but it's and it's a different world. And I would say, you know, the 
the cultures of the two places are very similar. Uh, Nebraskans and Indiana folks are hardworking, faithful people, and uh, they all love their sports. And um, I used to, when I went first went to Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska is about 250,000 people. And somebody asked me the difference between Indianapolis and and, uh, and uh, Lincoln, and I said, well. As far as I can tell, one of the major differences is they have four Applebee's and we had about 16 in Indianapolis. And so, you know, beyond that, it's basketball and recruiting and, and um, uh, people. And uh, I love the people there. I still still do. I'm looking forward to going to, to Omaha this weekend when, we, when the dogs play at, um, at, at Creighton. 2006, you came back to be the head of Butler's athletic department. If I had told you in what you've overseen, not just in basketball, but just on the campus with other sports at the university is, would say would have been hard to predict in a lot of ways. But if I had told you in October, 2009, the start of basketball practice for Butler university men's basketball, that you are about to embark on two consecutive title game appearances in the NCAA tournament, you would have said? Robert, you need to see a doctor. Um, I, I, I would say that you're a little bit nuts to be uh, predicting that. And, and yet, you know what? Um, I've always had this belief that uh, you never know. You never in a, the outcome of a ball game. You re, you really kind of never know. For one reason, you don't know it's because it's in the future and nobody knows that. Um, but um, I, you know, Brad Stevens had been our coach for a couple of years by then, and had already won a bunch of games. And I'd love to tell you that I knew he'd be that good, but I'd be a lion sack of something <laughs> if I said that. So um, Brad was, you know. And he is a uh, really, uh, really, really, really good coach, even a better person. Um, and the collection of, of players at that time, um, the sophomore class with, with Gordon Hayward and, uh, and Shelvin Mack and Ron Norad and, and Matt Howard was ahead of that group, uh, an older player that with that team, these, those teams. They they just complemented each other so well. They competed really hard. Nobody was perfect, um, but that was an amazing run there and one that created opportunities for Butler University, much less Butler Athletics and Butler Basketball. I was actually in the mayor's office for the run in 2010. I'd left by 11. And, and just to see what it meant to the city, how the city rallied around the team for the final four in Indianapolis. My understanding is, and I believe this is accurate because the, the national news media found it uh, quaint for lack of a better term, but the players on the men's basketball team, the morning of the final game went to class. Yeah. Uh, shocking. Isn't it that you would go to class when you can go to class? Um, you know, uh, you think about it this way, part of it is, I don't know of another team that's played in their hometown for decades, right? Now, I think that's maybe happened one other time, maybe when the tournament was in LA one year for UCLA. Uh, and I don't know if they went to class, by the way, but um, we were in our hometown and, and uh, it was, a, you know, such a beautiful uh, coincidence for our team to be so good and the tournament to be here because um, it just is... Now, it comes to Indianapolis fair, fairly often, but the chances of getting to the Final Four are really difficult, even for the best teams. So um, that was a, you know, a confluence of, of uh, events that really were plus. And I do remember chest bumping with your boss, Mayor Ballard, on Monument Circle when we had a pep rally there uh, in the one of the days of that weekend. Uh, he was a big big fan of Indianapolis, much less Butler. Um, and, uh, we, we enjoyed some time together, but that was, 
uh, it became almost a homecoming that weekend, a, a spontaneous homecoming for Butler alums um, who came from all over just to be in the city, much less get to the game if they could. And um, it was, you know, that, that really, and then to go back the next year, <laughs> that, then, then I would have really thought you needed to see a doctor if you'd have told me that you're going to do that again next year. Uh, I've had several people say, well, I got to, we got to go because we'll never get back there. They said that in 2010. Oh, sure. Then the next year they were going to Houston again. Like this is, well, this must be easy. I was I was standing right there on Monument Circle when when <laughs> when um, Colonel Ballard was chest bumping everybody, and yes. and finally I laughed and said, you know, if you get put on the ground, all this tough Marine campaign talk is going to be out the window, and especially <laughs> if Bobby Fong does it to you. By the way, yeah, right. Who was a diminutive fellow? What was going through your mind in the split seconds? after the ball leaves Gordon Hayward's hand and before it hits off the rim? Yeah, I, you know, I, like everybody else, things are happening fast there, right? You don't, you don't know that he's going to be, the the Zubek is going to miss the free throw on purpose. Um, And that's what they, that's what coach K called for in that case. And you don't know that you're going to get the rebound, even though they're kind of back, uh, defending, um, but the ball was seemed like it was in the air a really long time, and I I, I wasn't able to watch. I didn't force myself to watch the replay for several years. Um, I was there, right? I, <laughs> I I felt that enough when I when uh, I was there. But they really believed they could win. They had a great chance to win. It was a it was an excellent ball game and. Um, it is not better that we came in second. Uh, I've had some people say, don't you think? No. Yeah, Who the hell would say not, that? Not as a competitor, you know, or that it was still a good thing. You know, it was a good thing to win all the games up to that point. But um, at the end of the day, we had a really good chance, played, you know, those are hard games to score in and, and uh, you really have to be physical and so forth. And even the game is, I think, has changed a little bit in how it's, officiated now not, not, and and probably better because there's allowed a little bit more room to movement it was more of a wrestling match back then um but those were those were great that was a great weekend for butler university there's no two ways about that as someone who has been in love with basketball for decades and traveled the state of indiana has been in here one way or the other since the 1970s how accurate is the movie Hoosiers? Um, well, I I know Bobby Plump pretty well. You know, Bobby Plump is the real life Jimmy Chitwood. Bobby Plump went to Milan, was on that that team that uh, won it, and Bobby played at Butler and with two other teammates from that Milan team. And he said, you know the. The feel of the movie is about right, but there was no romance with the coach and uh, and the other teacher, Barbara Hershey and Gene Hackman. Uh, there, there, there was no drunk in the movie. Dennis Hopper <laughs> played the movie drunk. No town drunk that came out on the floor or uh, was a father of a player. He said um, uh, about the most accurate thing was the shot that that. And you've probably seen the literal footage of the shot, uh, the live, the real footage of the shot. He said that was about even. And when I first came back to Butler in 89, I asked him which bass, which end of the court was it on? And he kind of turned his head and said, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure it was on the north end uh, of the court. So anyway, that was, that was pretty interesting of, of knowing him and, and then, um, and I also know that when the movie was here and they were looking to do uh, the shots from Hinkle that I'm told by Billy Lynch that who was coaching football here at the time, that nobody here thought this movie would be worth a hoot. And they said, one day the producers said, we need a, our director said, we need a locker room. And uh, we, by that time, the Butler people were kind of fed up with these 
movie folks that would come in and thinking they own everything. So they said, what rotten locker room can we give them? And they gave them this locker room downstairs and the movie people said, this is perfect um, for what we need for this shot. So uh, a little funny, uh, they, they, Billy was telling me, he didn't think that people at Butler didn't think that the movie would make a dime. Who would watch this movie? But it's, it is really is one of the better sports movies out there. When's the last time you watched it? Last week. <laughs> Literally, I can't. I watch it multiple times a year. I'm, I'm sure I'm in the hundreds. In a, in a, Some of the lines, Dennis Hopper's lines are the greatest. I think. Well, that and I'll make it, and uh, it's time to play ball, and all those good things. Dentine. Dentine. That's right. <laughs> We are recording this podcast just a few weeks before, and we're going to post it during the NCAA tournament, the entirety of which is being held in the state of Indiana, with a lot of it being held in the city of Indianapolis. How does that make you feel as an adopted Hoosier? And what is Butler's role in in hosting the tournament and and one other question i want to ask because i know you're on the board of the indiana sports court but uh, what about the leadership of someone like ryan vaughn who's come on the leaders and legends podcast i've known him for a long time ben davis grad uh, just a terrific terrific young leader uh, how everybody came together to pull this off to make it happen you know i i want to speak to ryan first because um the Indiana Sports Corps has been around a while now and had some really good leaders. Uh, but, uh, and, and Ryan is simply one of the best in that he's continued to be able to pull to things together for the Sports Corps and for Indianapolis uh, in, in a difficult time, right? And especially now in the, in the almost 12th month, uh, month of the pandemic. Um, and so very bright, uh, huge collaborator, um, action-oriented. You know, I think he does a, a great job. He could, he'd be successful in just about anything. I, I, I don't know of anything he wouldn't be successful in. So he's been, he's been successful in everything so far. Yep. And so no, no, um, no doubt he would be able to do that no matter what. And he's, and, and he's relatively young guys from my standpoint anyway, I could see him accomplishing a lot much more going forward. Um, and I do think it's special that the, the tournament is all in Indiana. It's, you know, it speaks to us, the, the thinking of, of Indianapolis leaders to help the NCAA make its move to Indianapolis back in the nineties, I think it was. Um, and then to to have Dan Gavitt now in charge of basketball and figure out a way to have the tournament this year, because there's still a lot of places that probably would say, no, we're not going to let you come here and or we're not going to let you have a game here or this or that. And so pretty smart idea to try to work with one uh, medical entity of our state. And then, then as it turns out more than that, because of the, three different locations of Bloomington, Lafayette, and Indianapolis, and the medical teams there and leaders there. Uh, very smart idea. And then to try to pull all this off, and I, I think it's going to happen, and largely without, you know, it's, of course, we're predicting here, but we've been, Butler University has been able to have 20-plus games this year at Hinkle Fieldhouse with fans. This is not new to Indiana, much less Indianapolis or even Hinkle Fieldhouse. And you may know this, but we'll, we'll have six days of games here. Um, first and second round games and Sweet 16 games, six different uh, days when we have uh, 12 games through the first and second round and four games of the Sweet 16 here at Hinkle. And, you know, we're ready to, we were ready from the day one when we first got asked, would you be able to make this happen? And our answer was yes. And then we had to go figure out how to do that. But um, we, we wanted this to happen on a multiple levels. One, of course, is just for the, all the schools in the NCAA and all the student athletes and teams that 
you know, would have a chance to play for a national championship, which they didn't last year. And, and, and all the finances that go with it, of course, but secondly, for Butler University, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a crown jewel type of uh, event uh, in our country, much and even beyond. And a significant part of it's gonna be here at Hinkle Fieldhouse and on our campus. And so while we're still dealing with the pandemic and we're not, you know, we're not running around licking handlebars or anything, we still gotta be safe and take care of uh, each other. Um, but this is, it's, it's a great thing for, our, for all the schools that are involved, for the state of Indiana and for, for central Indiana. Um, I think it's, you know, we're going we're gonna to be able to have some fans, not a lot of fans, but some fans, which we just finished a game Sunday with uh, fans at our Villanova game. And even 20%, 25% make a difference. So um, that'll be good for the student athletes as well. So I, I just think it's really going to be special. Um, and, and, and the teams that get to come to Hinkle and play on our court and uh, in this building, uh, I think are in for a treat as well. Do you get a chance to, last quick question before I ask the five questions with which we end all our podcasts, but do you get a chance to interact with the announcers, whether it's Gus Johnson, Bill Rafferty, Sean Mc, I mean, the list goes on and on, right, from ESPN and other places. I get the sense, and I've heard them say it when I've watched games on TV, they love coming to the field house to call games. Yeah, I think, uh, I know they do. Uh, you're right. Um, in fact, I, I know that there was a recent comment by Jim Nance, who does games for the NCAA championship, who said, I want to do a game at Hinkle Fieldhouse. And uh, Bill Raftery has done them, and Gus Johnson has done them, and others, uh, many, many good uh, folks have done them. And if you like basketball, you know, and unless you're, um, you've got a, uh, burr up your saddle. Um, you you appreciate Hinkle Fieldhouse for what it is, and you know it kind of to me it feels like basketball, and I'm biased on the other side of it, right? I love it, um, but um, a lot of people have appreciation for the building and the history that's here. We end all Leaders and Legends podcasts with the same five questions of our guests. Our guest today is Barry Collier, Vice President and Director of Athletics for Butler University. Coach Collier, are you ready? I hope so. What was your first job? I was a bag boy at a grocery store in Miami, Florida. Publix? Publix is exactly right. What was your first concert? Um, I want to say it was Seals and Croft. Oh my. Uh, back in the seventies, right? It's pretty mellow, coach. Very mellow. Well, I, I didn't uh, no comment. <laughs> Mitch Daniels' first concert was Love and Spoonful and the Association at oh, Clues Hall. Go. All right. Along with uh, former Marion County prosecutor Terry Curry. They had the exact same first concert. Wow. The things Mine you learn dinner, dinner key auditorium. No, I'm sorry. It was at the uh, Miami Beach Convention Center in the 70s and the republican national convention was there nixon took the uh nomination and i think 68 and 72 do you remember that at all i do 72 i do i was there number three if you could suggest any book for someone to read which book would you recommend uh if i could only recommend one i'd recommend the bible absolutely Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? You said event, but you did you mean sporting event? I, I said event, but you can make it a sporting yeah. event. That's not fair. I asked you a question in the middle of the questions. Um, I guess I, you know, from a sports standpoint, I'd, I'd, um, I'd like to be at the center court at the final four. In history though, if you wanted to witness in an history, event. I would like to have been at uh, the constitutional uh, convention. That's a popular choice. Yeah. 
Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Blue? Besides my wife. Blue? Okay. <laughs> um, that's a great question. Not, not one you get an opportunity to fulfill, do you? But um, I, I think I would... Um, I would want to uh, meet with the, the president of the United States, whoever that was at the time when this availed itself. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Vice President and Director of Athletics for Butler University, former coach, Barry Collier. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It was a fun conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Good luck to you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.